1: Hello everyone, welcome to New Books in African Studies. My name is Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gregory Mann about his new book, From Empires to NGOs in the West African Sahel, The Road to Non-Governmentality, published by Cambridge University Press in 2014. Uh, Gregory Mann is an associate professor at the History Department at Columbia University, and he specializes in the history of Francophone West Africa. Dr. Gregory Mann, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if we could start the interview uh, by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I'm an historian of Africa. I live in New York City. I live actually in a somewhat African neighborhood of New York City in Harlem. And I've been doing research and visiting Mali in particular for about 20 years now. And that's pretty much the story. I grew up in New Orleans. I grew up in a sort of polyglot and interesting kind of town, spent most of my formative years in the South and got interested in African history uh, partly because it seemed to me that I had reached a point in my training in history as an undergraduate in which I realized I knew absolutely nothing about Africa that had any substance at all. And that kind of lack of knowledge attracted me to the subject matter because I began to wonder why it was that Africa was so absent from the curriculum where I was at the time at the University of Georgia. And since I got taken out of the wing by a very good historian there, David Scheinbrunn, who put me on the the straight path uh, to the study of Africa. So it was a series of good um, undergraduate mentors and advisors who encouraged me to pursue historical research and eventually I ended up working in Mali under the supervision of Dr. John Hunwick, who was one of the great historians of Islamic Africa, and particularly the manuscript tradition. And although I don't work in Arabic and I don't work in that tradition, the training of working on pre-colonial Africa, work on Islamic Africa, thinking about Africa's place in the world, in different worlds beyond the colonial world, also in the Islamic episteme, was very formative for me in how I approach historical
1: subjects in the African past. So how did you come to uh, to this book? How did you come to write uh, From Empires to NGOs?
0: I started thinking in the 1990s when I was working on my first book on uh, Native Sons on West African veterans and, and France. I started to notice how in Mali, which was then in a period of democratic transition in the 1990s, there was a great deal of contest on the streets about political power and how it was wielded, particularly the presidency. Uh, but at the same time, there was an enormous expansion of NGO activity. And it seemed to me that all the young entrepreneurial people I met who had the kind of skill and the means, and even people who were not so young, who were in their 40s and 50s, were opening, starting NGOs. Uh, And that there was a great scramble for local contracts, for local NGOs to get contracts from external funders, and that this was having a real effect on, on government in the country of Mali and particularly in even in rural areas where there was a simultaneous process of political decentralization so that more political power and administrative capacity was being pushed out from the center in the capital to the to the rural areas, the smaller towns, the cities, and even into the villages. And so it was just this kind of strange confluence of things where you saw these very active NGOs and what seemed to be a fairly inactive, in many ways seemed to be an inactive state or a kind of demoralized state. Uh, and you would find, I use this image in the book, but going down the road and I traveled around a lot in Mali at that time, I had a little motorcycle and I would, drive around, and um, you would see, you would pass these checkpoints where the, you know, there'd be these gendarmes kind of sleeping on the side of the road, sort of representing state power in some way, and um, you would see these big, powerful, white four-by-fours that the NGOs prefer, you know, zooming, coming down the highways, and the sort of contrast between state immobility and NGO mobility was was quite striking, and it got me interested in how There were different forms of political power at work and what the history of that, those forms of political power was. And then over time, I began to realize that I was, it was important to understand how Mali had its own very particular political history and that it had had a strong and active state at some point, which is important. And it was never just a part of a kind of a France-Afrique kind of neo-colonial dispensation in which France was really pulling the strings. This doesn't really describe Mali very well at all. And so it was important to think about this period of ambition and state power in the 1960s in contrast with the rise of NGO power in the 1990s and more recently. And that I struggled on to think about what would be a research project that would be able to get its arms around both this early period of at least the perception of state power and a set of ambitions and a sort of vision of sovereignty which in some ways is very normative but was very clear about what the african nation state could be and the period of the more recent period which is neoliberal but not only neoliberal in which the market predominates over the state in many ways um, but in which these the international ngos have so much uh, capacity within a place like Mali and across the Sahel more broadly. Um, And so I started to think of a research project that would allow me both to think about the political history of the place and recognize that it has its own political history, which is very important, but also to get away from the kind of conceptual framework of African history in which it's usually written, in which independence is this key kind of turning point and even in the ways in which we, you know, casually conceive of African history as kind of pre-colonial, colonial, post-colonial, that that's really inadequate to understand the kind of transitions uh, at work in, in contemporary Africa. Um, and so I wanted to do a kind of project that had some ability to look into the more distant past, in, as you know, as into the, at least into the 19th century, in any case, but also was very aware of the sort of contemporary political scenario as being the product of a great deal of political work and a series of initiatives and projects, you know, some of which failed and some of which succeeded. Um, but basically to get away from the, from the kind of idea that the colonial history was really determining everything that was happening in, in the post-colony, which doesn't make any sense, uh, or is sort of over, over-argued, over, over-determined. I mean, it's a sort of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up very well. Uh, and to think about African history in its own sort of temporalities with its own kind of, you know, kind of characteristics and things that happen that extend across generations, across decades, and that, that continue to have a kind of um, force behind them or a certain momentum. I also wanted to, um, and I don't want to go on too long about this, but just conceptually um, to think about the periodization differently was important for me in the, in the book. Uh, and one thing that really mattered to me a great deal was to think about causality differently. And what the book doesn't try to do is to make a very, to make an over-determined argument, or even a determined argument, right? The book makes an argument about contingency and the phenomenon of non-governmentality or the way in which sort of governmental rationality is practiced within Sahelian states, not by the states themselves, but by the confluence of international NGOs, their own donors and agendas, and local NGOs, which work in a more sort of neoliberal logic of the market, that the form of non-governmentality that emerged in the Sahelian states was not is not a product of anyone's design. There's no great scheme behind it. There's no great logic behind it. There's no single cause that produces this phenomenon, that it it has multiple origins. And in fact, the people who built up the great capacity of the state, of the ambitious state of the early 1960s, would have been horrified to see this outcome as not their intended outcome. And what I felt somewhat liberated by, even in writing the book, was recognizing that the causality is not at all clear, and that it needn't be, and that the burden of historical argument needn't be to determine really the causality. Uh, And so that was sort of important to me in making the argument in the book that stretches from this period of sort of strong state control and ambition to a period where those things are much more diffuse and it's much more complex. It's it's a very sort of slippery, slippery scenario, but that I didn't have to draw very clear lines.
1: I mean, I, I also felt that to a large degree, you were facing a very interesting challenge, which is uh, probably shared by many historians who try to write about ideas, you know, and it's basically how to appreciate both the genesis and the evolution of those ideas. And in some ways, like you mentioned, the often unintended consequences of those ideas and, and how they they are Thought in one way, and there's a theory behind what the gov- what government is or what government should be and then once they start to get implemented, they just kind of take a life of their own um and it's particularly i think difficult uh for historians to sort of find the right like you say the right kind of framework to 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 present those 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 stories. Um, and I felt like the structure and the strategy in your book, uh, were very consciously thought to, to, to find a, find that framework, you know, how to tell this story without making it, like you say, a story that has a clear beginning, middle and end. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how sort of you came to, uh, structure the book? Um, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, intru- I, 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 and you mentioned in your introduction, it's not meant to be um, comprehensive, it's not meant to be chronological, Uh, but it is uh, quite a feat that you do end up with a sense of of a history, that you have told us a history. Um, So can you tell us more about it? Was was it a matter of sources, the things that you had available to you? How did you choose these particular topics um, to tell this story?
0: Well, that's an interesting question that that makes me reflect on, the sort of accident by which the book itself comes into being. Uh, and so my methodology, which which is, um, too big a word for his kind of ad hoc practice, right? Is that most of the chapters of the book effectively emerge from finding one archival load or one kind of chunk of a story or a phenomena or an argument and kind of working out from that, um, so, there's a chapter on the period in which there was a set of political prisoners from the socialist anti colonial government of the USRDA, or the USRDA, who were sent to these Saharan prisons, and that they became the objects of a human rights campaign directed at Mali in the 1970s. And that grew partly from debates within Mali about the history of these prisoners and what had happened to them. And, who was responsible for that? And should there be a kind of accounting for that? And there was a series of kind of tell-all memoirs that were being published in the early, late 90s, early 2000s uh, around these questions. And so it was a real debate within Mali that kind of brought me partly to that. Um, but also recognizing, oh, this matches up with these human rights campaigns from the outside. And at least I used Amnesty in particular because those are the archives that I had available and they were a particularly obviously powerful player on the scene. So there's a sense in which, you know, you recognize a question, you recognize something that seems important that, that matters to people. That's a question that mattered to people in Mali in particular. And then to think, about, well, how does it play on the outside and where where can wh- where can I find the interface between these forces that are at work around the globe? I mean, Amnesty is an international organization with a big reach, which is only one representation of a whole human rights movement that comes to fruition, especially in the 1970s how does it match up with this particular history of of Mali or uh, that? And how does that reflect something broader across the Sahel perhaps? So it's part of the accident of where there's a set of archives around that. Um, And partly strategic. I mean, there's a chapter that is about how it is that the French state in the late 1950s, early 1960s was attempting to claim Muslim pilgrims in, in the, in the Sudan. Why was it that France was eagerly trying to claim them as its own citizens or former citizens or nationals and how it was that the Sahelian states themselves were thinking about their pilgrims as citizens, which is a different way to conceptualize uh, a centuries-old phenomena of people making the pilgrimage overland across the the Sahel um, from Senegal, Mali, et cetera, um, to, to the Hijaz, obviously, but often stopping in Sudan either on the way there or on the way back and setting up up these very important West African communities in Sudan, which suddenly become the object of some kind of contest at the period of independence of first of Sudan and then of the the different Sahelian states. Um, That particular chapter grew part of finding out that, in, in a systematic way, I tried to read the French embassy reports across the Sahel for the 1960s. Because if you go to where the diplomatic archives are, the embassy reports are in Nantes in France. You can start in Dakar in the West, and you can read all the way to Asmara in the East. And so I read across the Sahel for that decade, what were the questions that were being recognized by these in these consular reports. Now there's a selection effect there because it's the French consular reports. They're interested in consular questions, which are often about, Nationality, citizenship, membership, migration, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, I had thought a lot about the Hajj routes before, and I'd written a little bit about that before. And it jumped out. There was this real debate about who were these pilgrims? Who were they not in the sense of, well, obviously they're Muslims, they're pilgrims, they're coming from one part of Africa and going to the hijaz, but also who to whom do they, they belong? To which nation state do they belong? Who could claim them? And And why did that matter suddenly in some strange way? And I really wanted that chapter in the book to offer a very different axis for thinking about Sahelian history over, the longer, over longer time periods. But in contrast to the sort of south-north migration from especially Senegal, Mali, Mauritania to France, which is a very well-studied phenomenon. And there's a second chapter that is about precisely that phenomenon of migration to France and how it was that West Africans established themselves in France and how their political status has changed greatly over time and created a kind of language of conceptual vocabulary for thinking about their place in this emerging nation state of kind of effectively hexagonal France, right? That France, you know, truncated of its empire, shorn of its empire, becoming a different kind of nation state within a European context was also receiving significant amount of uh, migration from the former empire. And then it was clear that in that instance, that again, it was a phenomenon that's been well studied rarely from the African point of view, much more often from the French point of view, but that even from the French archives and the Malian archives and the Senegalese archives, it becomes clear that the migrants who were going to France, in the 1960s are not being, you know, refused by France quite to the contrary and then in fact it's places like Mali and Guinea with their socialist politics that are quite eager and determined in fact to claim that migrant labor as their own uh, and to even to forbid people from making uh, making uh, from migrating to to France to work but the two chapters that I meant to be as kind of two different axes uh, two different ways of thinking about this phenomenon of migration which is really characteristic of the Sahel Especially since the 1970s, but always, it's always been a place of great movement and mobility. The geography lends itself to that, as do the climactic conditions and so forth. And to think these are both long durée questions, as in the case of the pilgrimage, but also questions that emerge in complex moments like that of of decolonization. Um, And one final thing that I would say about sort of the structure of the book so this is two chapters about the politics, the building up of a state or states across the Sahel, and the building up of the idea of a kind of a social logic in the Sahel. Two chapters about migration I've just discussed to Sudan and to France, and then two chapters, one about the famine of the 1970s and the efforts around its relief, and the last one about the human rights campaigns of the 1970s. But running through these uh, is a, a kind of a, a weak narrative structure, a deliberately weak narrative structure, um, which is maybe annoying for some readers, but hopefully not too annoying, of of using the figure of Madeira Keita as a character who reappears in almost every one of these chapters. And Madeira Keita is an interesting and kind of complex figure who I try to use as a vehicle to both... Offer a kind of a, a string that helps to tie the different chapters together, but also a kind of a, a person who consistently animates the chapters in different ways, um, and that's not entirely successful insofar so far as my own vision of him is not s- super well rounded. You know, he, there's not there's a there's a great amount in the public sphere. His private sort of characteristics, you know, it's not a biography anyway, but sort of his pro- his private kind of characteristics, his his. His, his full family dynamics, his full family history i didn't I was a bit ginger about entering too deeply into that um, partly out of respect for his family and partly out of just the weaknesses of my own, my own research um, but i he reappears in every one of these chapters he's a powerful minister in the Malian government he's a key figure in the formation of the anti-colonial and multi-territorial political party the RDA or the DA. He helps to found that in Bamako and in Guinea. He's one of the key persons, in, key people in in the in Guinea's powerful anti-colonial movement. He's involved with the research agenda of, of Georges Valanger, who's a very influential French sociologist of the post-war period. And he is a really determinative figure in the way that Mali's politics emerges in the 1960s, which is crucial to the book insofar as The argument has to be made that Mali is not part of this France-Afrique scenario from the get-go, and that it has its own political forces, and it has its own history, and there is a degree of of self-determination there, um, which is easily sort of set aside by histories and other studies of West African politics or African politics that kind of assume that everything is neocolonial, that everything's always already arranged, which in this period in the 60s is, is, is very much not the case. So I try to use Keita as as a kind of narrative vehicle in some way. Um, Partly because coincidentally he just reappears over and over again. Uh, Except for the chapter on the human rights campaigns in which he's the subject. He becomes one of these political prisoners that Amnesty is trying to free. Uh, He's the subject of a human rights campaign. But more appropriately, actually he's the object of the human rights campaign insofar as he's not himself. He's a prisoner. He's not directly engaged in it. Uh, But he's He is the object of a number of kind of letters and letter writing campaigns and interventions from uh, beyond Mali to get the national government to to liberate him. So I use him as this kind of a character. Um, And the whole then of the book is composed around these two, these pairs of chapters or three pairs of chapters, each looking at a different moment, a different kind of set of forces. But when, what I hope is a way that's provocative and interesting, because actually, you, as you move from one chapter to another, you basically leap into a whole other <laughs> context. I mean, you leap from, you know, eastern Sudan into you know, the Paris and, it, and its suburbs, and then you sort of leap from there back to the Sahel in the time of famine, and then you leap from there to these, these salt mines in the Sahara, so that in some sense, you know, by the time you're bored with one chapter, hopefully the next chapter is, is opening up something entirely different um, that propels the book forward in some sense that's my that was a bit my sort of narrative strategy to the extent that the book has a narrative strategy
1: I also um got the sense that in in choosing um in choosing this a hell as sort of like the like a regional focus of of, of the book you know, you were talking about the the different sort of cleavages or the different uh, ways in which African history is narrated. And particularly in this period, I've always find it very interesting how we talk about, um, sort of the history of African nationalism, uh, but in, but rarely is that history really focused in nation states. You know, it's kind of like African nationalism is like this big thing and we apply it, um, to nation states, um, in, but even if we were to apply it to nation states, it wouldn't necessarily make all that much sense. Um, and I, I get the feeling that uh, by choosing the Sahel uh, as as like a, a a place that is not quite fixed, but it's it's kind of emerging in and of itself as a region uh, throughout this period, um, you, you were able very much to to uh, uh, portray that 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 fluidity and and that sort of political. And social fluidity that 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 uh, um, sort of characterizes this this area, and and but like you said, by that by that very measure, tied to to what we would say the pre-colonial period and the colonial period, and see how that doesn't stop. It never becomes even after we see the emergence of specific nation states. Uh, that fluidity uh, uh, is not fixed in time.
0: Well, there's, there's this kind of regional identity in the Sahel. Um, and there is something that is identifiable as existing over a long period of time. There's a particular geography uh, and the conditions that it imposes and the way that people have adapted to those over time. So to be at the limit of kind of rain-fed agriculture, to be just south of the Sahara, to be sort of constantly in contact with uh, – you know the, the Saharan world, with by extension then with the Mediterranean, with the Islamic world, um, but also with the societies you know to the south and to the west um, creates a kind of and also the, the point of having a, this both this imperial history over time the great African empires with which we're all familiar, you know Ghana Mali Songhai, but more recently you know um, the Masina, the the, the the different sort of Islamic states of El Hajj et etc. It creates a kind of shared identity of the Sahel, which is always fluid. It's kind of a weak. It's kind of a weak. It's not a binding identity in some sense. Um, it's an area characterized by, by pastoralism, by different efforts at state building, uh, by migration and mobility, and that it's it's interesting to me the way in which this kind of geographic. Designator, which is always a fairly weak one. It's always imprecise, just the way the desert moves back and forth and the seasons change and whatnot. Uh, it becomes, uh, much, much more, uh, structurally rigid in some sense as an identity with the creation of the, the SILS or the Committee for the Struggle Against the Drought in the Sahara and Sahel, uh, in the 1970s and becomes this kind of regional identifier. And it's, it's really at that point in the 70s, people started talking about Sahel as this kind of coherent and really um, concrete identity of several different member states, um, some of which actually aren't technically Sahelian. I wanted to suggest that looking at that region, which has its own historicity, allows one to sort of bear in mind that there are, there are these sort of longer durée characteristics of African history. And that the, the, the challenge really is, is to is sort of conjugate or combine all the different sort of temporalities at work. Uh, And the different kind of external, external and internal identities that are also at work. But to think about, well, look, there are things that have been going on for 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 decades, for generations, maybe for centuries, or or phenomena that have been present. They've changed. They're dynamic. They shift over time. But you know, the Sahelian states now have been part of the societies that compose them. Part of the Muslim world for for centuries, varying degrees of capture or purchase or traction. The colonial period was short, very short in many places uh, and could be very violent, but was not really determinative in the way that it's often portrayed to be, too easily portrayed to be. Uh, And that there's now 50 years of post-colonial history, which are 50 very poorly understood years of what happened after independence and the amount of real historical work, by which I mean rigorous, you know, multi-source work on the post-colonial political history of of Sahelian states and many other African states. It's just incredibly weak. It's really incredibly weak. Um, There's now lots of great stuff being done, but you, when you read that, you understand how shallow the the foundation actually is that people are doing foundational work in post-colonial history from which they then can build maybe you know, really wonderful um, excursions into the political history and and, and into the history of the present. Um, But they have to do a lot of foundational work. And, my intention in the book, in some ways, the the whole sort of first part of the book, um, which I think is, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that part of the book. Um, but it's it, it does this kind of foundational work that I sometimes think, gee, if I were writing about it, even a different part of Africa, but certainly a different part of the world, like there would be a library that does this foundational work, you know, that sort of lays down what exactly was going on and it clears out some of the the thicket of the kind of the mythologies, the nationalist mythologies that also oral history also easily produces to sort of really understand well what are the decisions that are, people are making and why are they making those decisions and in what context and what are the effects anticipated and unanticipated of the decisions that that people make so where were we you know how, how do we how do we get here um but without only thinking backwards but also thinking forwards from those really germinal moments uh of the late 1950s or the 1960s when important decisions were made that did, that did have ongoing effects, but that the secondary literature captures the dynamics you know, fairly poorly. It's an interesting thing. If you look back at some of the best work, Who? what's the best work on, you know, take a given African uh, state? I Don't claim to know the whole library, right? But often the best work is is the work of political scientists in the 1960s. I mean, if I want to think about Cote d'Ivoire, if I want to think about Mali, I want to look at Aristide Zolberg which is, you know, 1966. And that is a period in which political scientists did great work. And there's a long period in which it's, it's, it's not recent enough to be of interest to political scientists, not far enough away to be of interest to historians. So not that much is produced that is very rigorously researched. And there's a recent kind of return to thinking about, oh, well, we need to be able to think about African politics and African nation states and African political phenomenon uh, as historical phenomenon. And there's a great deal of foundational work to be done in order to pursue that.
1: I think that also part of that lacking in in the, in the foundational work that you mentioned is, um, it's probably a function, if not um, it's a function of a number of things, but one of the things that I think is a function of is that the very sort of shallow, um, just uh, intellectual history that we have uh, of of this period. Like you said, that uh, we have uh, this truncated understanding of how people, how ideas about the state government or, you know, most intellectual uh, production, uh, sort of something emerges after independence, something was going on during colonialism and to some extent even less we understand what was happening before. And uh one of the things that I, I very much enjoyed in 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 in, particularly in your examination of Madeira Keita, uh, is particularly how, how he's not uh, he's not uh constrained by thinking of himself as like what part of my thinking is colonial or anti-colonial or African or uh, neo-colonial or whatever, you know, he's just, he's, he's an intellectual, he's thinking and he's uh, also an activist and, um, and he's not, but he doesn't seem to be particularly trying to um, position himself in, in one way or another. And, and the way in which you kind of trace uh, his intellectual evolution uh, like you said it's not unique you know i mean at least uh, from my own work on, on on sort of 19th century writers in, in ghana it, it 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 resonated quite a bit um uh, um the way in which these these writers uh, reflected about uh the role and the nature of state and government uh and how much of that uh the historiography tends to sort of um, bypass, ignore, or like interpret as either nationalist, or and if they cannot figure it out how to present it as nationalist, they just don't present it at all. Um, so, in in that respect, I figure, I, I felt I, I felt that uh, your book, uh, again, you know, as is, is a very, is a, it presents a very complex uh, understanding of of a new way of thinking uh, about intellectual history in Africa. Uh, both chronologically and thematically, and just in the way in which it constructs uh, the object of study. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the idea of government—you know, how do how do these intellectuals uh, or oh, intellectuals like Madhuricita thought about government? How they uh, trans- how these ideas transferred in, uh, into uh, tran- were translated into effective policies um, and you know, how they responded or not um, to very concrete uh, challenges on the ground. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not in, incredibly familiar with the way in which uh, intellectual history of, of French intellectuals uh, has has been written in, in French colonial Africa. Uh, so do you feel that um, that's part of the fo- foundational work that you had to do, just kind of figure out how... Made Arcade uh, fit in, in, in a larger intellectual history?
0: Yes. I mean, he, he that's a difficult thing to do, of course. And I, I find that really pushing. I, I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues who are actually intellectual historians because I find that work <laughs> uh, very hard to do because I always think it's at the limits of interpretation to know how and why people think and argue the way they do uh, and to to recognize, for example, the connections between what one reads or what one hears, the arguments to which one is exposed or even you know with which one engages, and the actual kind of decisions and, and particularly the political decisions and the kind of um, tactics that emerge from that, and what's confounding about someone like madeira Keita is mm-hmm. above all he's a tactician i mean he's a kind of political street fighter he is uh someone who has a very clear vision of what he wants to do and works with great i mean i do admire the person in particular ways that he did have a great deal of sort of seems to be kind of disciplined about what he wanted to achieve um so recognize that characteristic is uh without trying to be captured by that um but, the, you know, the connection between the ideas to which one is exposed or the people engaged with and the tactical choices made politically about how to achieve what one wants to achieve, it's very hard to establish and, and, and sustain. Um, someone like Keita and his closest kind of peers and colleagues, where I think in many ways in ways that are often if forgotten or maybe just, un, you know, unknown. I mean, the, really the product of this communist training in the 1940s from which they took the idea of what the structure and the mechanics of the party ought to be, which made them very good at building kind of political parties um, on a certain blueprint. Um, they didn't really take entirely, they took some of the analytical vocabulary without necessarily taking the analysis uh, and so they weren't sort of died in the wool communist, although someone like Kate is a little closer to that, and some of the like others were um, in different places um, but they had an idea of what the party was supposed to do and how it was supposed to work, and that was quite influential for them, so they knew what a party was they knew what the state was because they were fighting against it but also working within it, and it's one of the sort of characteristics of the anti-colonial movements across the continent, but I think it's even more acute in Francophone Africa that, you know, all these, all the, all the sort of leading cadres of, of the the political parties, the anti-colonial parties, um, were at the same time, civil servants that they worked within the, within the lower ranks of the the administration and they, and they witnessed how it was the administration functioned. and, And, uh, they were very much trained in that, in that regard. Um, But what changed quite dramatically, and I think it's a shift that happens over, I say it's dramatic, but also happens over many years with particular events like the Sahelian famine of 1973, 74 being particularly important within it. But what changes over time is, is not so much the idea of what the state is and should do, but the idea of what government is, what it means to govern and what exactly is being governed. Uh, and I think that that's really the question that most separates uh, sort of political scenario that one can recognize, you know, over the last 20 years or so um, in contemporary Africa from what would have prevailed in the decades previous to that. It's not so much about the state, it's about what we think that government is, is and is meant to do. And is government meant to assure the conditions of life? Is government meant to sort of intervene uh, medically, biomedically? What are the sort of social obligations that? uh are the state is meant to provide um and which partly determine its its success or its failure and one of the key issues that i look at in the book around this question is is speaks to the question of sovereignty as well is the human rights debates and to what extent is it down to a national government to govern the conditions of life to control the conditions of life of, of its citizens so the most extreme you know uh, the outlier example uh, being the political prisoners you know can they be uh, abused in any way that the state sees fit or their kind of international norms and and, and practices that, to which they will be sort of brought by which they'll be brought to account or brought to book eventually and it's consistent it's this shifting idea of what is government and the capacity of government to provide and then of course the failure of the states to actually be able to govern in that much broader sense of what governing means, by the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s, it's the failure of states to offer that that is the ongoing kind of, you know, macro theme of uh, or, or of, of of African politics over the last several decades. You know, it's, the, the state can't actually govern on its own um, because now what it means to govern is so expansive, but also because in the West African scenario the more radical or the more sharply anti-colonial of the party states worked against, quite deliberately, the local institutions of government or instances of government, which were the chiefs. And the breaking apart of the chieftaincy, while it might have been progressive in some sense... And certainly moved towards a sort of democratization and the sort of realization of the republican ideal of equality amongst the citizens at the same time stripped these ambitious nation states like Guinea and Mali, also to some extent Niger, which has a more complicated history in this regard, it stripped them of the capacity to actually administer on the ground because they didn't it, it took out the kind of middle layer of the administration when the chiefs were dismissed you had only the civil service left. And the civil service was not so numerous, not so well-trained, not present evenly across the country. And so there's an increasingly great mandate of what it means to govern. You have to do many more things. And increasingly, and a a diminished capacity of the state to actually provide those things. And in some ways it's a very simple administrative problem, but it opens up this key space into which the NGOs emerge. And as the conditions of life degrade in the context of the drought and the ensuing famine, the NGOs emerge. And over time, states become very reliant on NGOs to actually take up some of the, some of the charge of governance is to be taken up by the NGOs. And the usual way of thinking of this is, of course, that, that means that the states are now weaker. But one of the cautions that I try to express in, in the book, and then I, you know, it's, it's, I'm not alone in this regard, is to recognize that, in fact, the more that international NGOs absorb the charge of government in Africa, and particularly in the Sahel, the more it liberates, in some sense, states to engage in other pursuits. So let's leave the NGOs to do the sort of the, the, the biopower model of governing. Let's invest in, in state security, right? Let's invest in... Uh, You know, maintaining ourselves in power or let's invest in maintaining this administrative structure or, you know, we can pursue other other initiatives and other agenda without necessarily being bogged down or captured by this very expansive notion of, of government that has come to prevail.
1: Uh, this question of, of what is government and uh, or what is not or what it should be, etc., is obviously neither unique nor uh, new um, to African post-independent states. I, I found it very provoking um, in the sense that uh, it seems like it, it would be, like you said, something that we take for granted and, and how in the context of these emerging um, states, sort of, it, it becomes relevant again. And I wonder whether you think that, that it should become relevant even outside of that, of that context. You know, what, what do you think that are, that we can learn uh, from, from the, the history of non-governmentality in the Sahel uh, more broadly, both in terms of uh, the study of the, politics and political political ideas in and about Africa, and and just in terms of political thought, more uh, more widely.
0: Uh, that's a, that's uh, such a compelling question because I struggle with this. Right on one hand, as historian, one wants to underscore the, the particularities, the unique trajectories, the long durée characteristics of a given object of study. Take the Sahel, you know, in the present case. Right. On the other hand, you know, analytically one doesn't want to get captured by that particularity to say that, look, what happened in the Sahel is unique to the Sahel could only happen here. You know, it's limited to Africa or it's limited to just this part of Africa. So there's two things in some sense in, in tension with each other. My sense is, and I, I you know, look, I'm a historian of West Africa. This is the only place that I know. Right. Uh, so, but my, my sense is the more I worked on this project that actually what was going on in the Sahel in the last several decades is merely an extreme example of a sort of a broader shift that is happening elsewhere, you know, elsewhere across the African continent and then in other parts of the world as well. Uh, but in other parts of the world, often this, this, this state is either is, is more powerful or secure or is uh, less uh, subject to the sort of the leverage of the international um, donors or the international financial institutions. Donor is a bit of a charged word. Um, but that capacity of the, or the, the ability of the, the neoliberal ideology expressed through the international financial institutions in the Sahelian states in the particular, to provoke the, the shedding of industries, the shedding of state industries, the shedding of state obligations, uh, particularly in the 80s and the 90s was extreme, and that what was left was a very stripped-down kind of state which could not meet uh, the obligations that, and the aspirations that you know, the founding sort of generation had set in some way and maybe no longer really aspired to do that. Um, but that sort of the starkness of the Sahelian example does not mean the Sahelian example is, is, is unique, that the rise of this kind of non-governmentality I argue in the book it precedes the sort of neoliberal moment, but of course it's exacerbated by by the effects of the neoliberal ideology. In other words, its, it's real origins lay partly, and this is the law of sort of unintended consequences, its real origins in the Sahel lay in the ambitious socialist projects of, of the 1960s. Uh, but in fact... The the some of those gestures, some of those moves, some of those anti-colonial policies I mentioned before, the 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 abolition of the chieftaincy, for example, opened up this gap between state and government into which, into which the NGOs could move. Their presence is not entirely a product of the, the the neoliberal moment; it precedes the neoliberal moment. But the neoliberal moment of the expansion of the market logic, the shrinking of the state and its capacities uh exacerbates the the problem of or, or the phenomenon of of non-governmentality and in that regard i think opens up this very uh, unclear uh scenario in which conceivably in sort of for the states for the sake of argument one could say well perhaps it is that people living in sahelian states can call on services that are provided uh, funded uh, organized orchestrated from from abroad or in 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 some kind of collaboration of local organizations and instances uh civic or otherwise with you know outside actors of different kinds um so perhaps you know governing in that large sort of biopower sense of governing is 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 you know uh more effective um in under the phenomenon or the umbrella of non-governmentality um but on the other hand it does raise a question which is that of participation in that one of the things that was striking to me over the last 20 years in, in Mali is the degree in which the political questions on the ground sometimes are very local and they're very particular and and you don't actually fully understand what's at stake which I think many people recognize this phenomenon um, what's really at stake in this argument between these two parties or between these two characters. Um, but sometimes the things that become real flashpoints are initiatives from abroad that are being brought into places like Mali or Niger or Burkina, uh, where they don't translate in very well or translate into something that is, uh, very different than what people might want, what people might want. Uh, More clearly, if I can say that a little more clearly, you could see that, for instance, international feminist organizations might have a particular vision of what they would like to see as local policy around family law, for example, Um, and given the leverage they might have in a place like, like Mali or a place like Niger, they might be able to impose part of that vision on the sort of the institutional politics, the presidency down, but the street might not accept that vision, and so and might push back, which is what happened, notably in Mali 2009, 2011. But one thing that stands out to me in that regard is not to say that the feminist organizations are right when the street is wrong, or vice versa, because it's not really my role analyzing the scenario here, right? But would be to say, isn't that interesting? This happens over and over again. And Aminata Dramantharare uh, wrote a great deal about this. Um, and I don't subscribe to all of the ideas of Aminata Dramantharare, but one of the things that she pointed out, uh, I think, quite astutely um, in the early 2000s was effectively, and I'm, I'm not really paraphrasing here, but this is a lesson that I draw from what she says, that effectively a lot of the political questions, especially some of the most burning and some of the most intimate political questions at work in in the Sahel are actually pushed from the outside and that the issue is not even so much that the people living in those states, the citizens of those states, don't get to determine what the answers to those questions are. It's that they don't get to determine what the questions themselves are. So is the burning social issue of a given uh, society, is it um, the right to divorce or is it... uh, marriage of 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 people who are very young or is it uh excision or is it uh rights of inheritance so you know these are a whole set of issues that one can cast under the broad kind of net of you know being around family law and, and human rights but tactically on the ground malian feminists would have chosen a different set of issues to pursue than international feminists chose to pursue. And this is actually sort of the missing chapter of the book, if I were going to write volume two or something like that, would be precisely about feminist politics. Uh, there's two places that I don't touch in the book, the two phenomena that I don't really touch in the book. And one is feminist politics is where I can really, I think you can really see non-governmentality at work and, and, and unanticipated consequences at work around feminist politics. And the second would be sort of the biomedical, um, which I just feel like I don't really have the expertise or the capacity to really address, but like where NGO activity uh, is starkest and maybe in some ways most, you know, kind of productive, right, is around the way that the national systems of health and international capacities and imperatives sort of intersect, right? Um, and I didn't broach those in the book because for various reasons, um, Mostly because at some point I wanted to finish the book, and I thought it could be endless. <laughs> uh, but that that I saw these are the two places around around health provision, healthcare provision, and, and around feminist politics, um, and the way that it plays out. Uh, and I thought there were other people who were better positioned to address those two things. I thought those are beyond my my capacity, beyond beyond my knowledge, uh, beyond my skill set, particularly in the biomedical sense. Uh, but I thought they were really the key sort of tests. Um, that would, well, that maybe puts it too starkly, in a too positivist way. But there were these two kind of key phenomena that would help understand how non-governmentality works, uh, and I and I just didn't didn't uh, didn't really dare to attack them.
1: Well, Greg, um, think, um, I think I've taken a lot of your time now. Can you just tell us a little bit of what you're currently working on?
0: Well, I worked for a while, the Mali crisis of 2012 and 13 happened, you know, the, the coup, the sort of foreign intervention, the, the war in the North is ongoing. Uh, I was involved in writing and thinking about that for, for some period of time and then decided that, okay, this is, this is, um, I, I want to now do something else. Uh, and so now I'm working on the exile of Samritore to Gabon uh from 1898 to 1900 so it's a very different time period uh and actually a very different set of questions so i'm sort of nibbling away at this uh brief moment in in torre's in summary's life when he was in exile and then he, he died in 1900 in, in exile and trying to think about this sort of set of events that brings him to gabon from guinea and mali and uh what that uh, particular scenario might reveal about the broader question of the sort of emergent Franco-African world at that time.
1: Mm, Well, sounds exciting. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Take care. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.